0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition podcast sponsored by the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm Brian O'Connor, adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth, and joining me today, I have the pleasure of speaking with David Rhodes, former director of software development at Chicago Trading Company, current owner... And technology consultant at Rhodes Consulting and Technologies, and active ETA investor, advisor, and director. Thank you for joining us today, David.
1: Hey, great. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. So, maybe uh, a, a nice place to start would be if you gave us just a little bit of uh, background on you and how you got into. Uh, the universe of searching and and entrepreneurship through acquisition from a, what seems like a pretty heavy technical background.
1: <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, just a little bit of my background. So I've been in IT for 25 plus years. Uh, started out in the 1990s doing PC and network installs. And to, to further date myself, those were mostly running DOS, not Windows. Um, the big applications were Lotus One Two Three and WordPerfect, not Excel and and Word. So you know the good old days. Um, <laughs> a couple of years in, I had the chance to work on a project that required some custom code and not just installing applications and and I was hooked. Um, I especially loved a style called object oriented programming. My aha moment came on a project in the mid nineties. I lobbied my bosses to always keep me on the projects where. That would be used, um, and it's often used to solve some of the more complex problems, and at the time, that tended to be telecom and electronic trading. So that's what got me to electronic trading. Um, Spent the last 15 years or so in Chicago uh, doing various forms of electronic trading, and I ended my, let's call it, uh, first career in 2016 as, as you mentioned, the Director of Software Development at Chicago Trading Company. It's an options market-making firm. So I took some time off and tried to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up. Uh, a friend of mine from CTC introduced me to Carlos Saez at the Operan Group. So Carlos and I got together, and he tried to explain the search model to me. It sounded very interesting, if not just a little confusing. Um, <laughs> I was really compelled by the idea, though, of being an active LP, um, not just a passive investor and somehow trying to figure out how to incorporate a, a technology background um, So one thing that Carlos suggested that I do was this is late 2016 So I attended the ETA conference, which again is coming up here again soon To then figure out what I was investing in um, Found it to be an amazing group of talented hard-working people broad range of really interesting industries um, many of which had a technology opportunity and a challenge. And so, you know, kind of figured out, well, from my first career, I really miss being around smart, driven, hardworking people, and that's table stakes to be a searcher, just like it is in trading. And I knew that I wanted to somehow use a technology background, but something different from trading. So put it all together, and that's what inspired me to, to, to kind of launch a second career around technology and search funds
0: excellent well
1: uh it's a, it's an interesting
0: path toward uh eta <laughs> everyone's got their own uh, unique path that's that's uh so great that you've found your way into this community david from a, a a technology background and I can say um that you know it, your involvement has helped so many searchers as they think about uh development of thesis in um really all uh sectors not not necessarily just you know you might you might come to think of SaaS or something you, mm-hmm. you know sort of very tech forward but it's it's fair to say that there's you know really no business today that that doesn't have some sort of technology involved right and so uh to say that you help with sort of technology uh <laughs> it, it is pretty broad. are there areas that you tend to focus on or specialize in um you know maybe as you're working with uh searchers um, uh during a a, a a diligence or evaluative period or maybe post acquisition maybe talk about uh where you really insert yourself into the technology component of uh of of these companies that come up in the uh in the ETA path.
1: Yeah, that's uh that's a great question. So, uh my focus does tend to be on custom software development. Um and you mentioned SaaS, uh which is an an important thing, but it's also important to remember that um, even if a company doesn 't have a customer facing software offering, but software is important internally to the to the running of their business then it 's still important to the company so it 's easy to think of software driven firms as those that have some software facing a customer but that's not uh, that 's not the only kind of firm that that ends up with custom software so the more a company relies on custom software whether it 's facing their customers or it just runs their business internally that's that 's where I help uh, i, I I help more so I'll work with searchers as you mentioned on potential deals helping to look for what are the technical risks for both running the current operations but even more importantly to the investors thesis and growth plans Um, I'll work with new CEOs who have just closed deals who um, may experience have lack of experience leading uh, or managing software driven companies and I'll occasionally work with investors who just happen to have a portfolio company that feels like they could really get more out of their technology team. Um, and then the work I do with those uh, the, the, those folks tends to fall in three areas. So pre-diligent, pre-deal diligence with a searcher, software process improvement is something I do a lot of post-close and transitional leadership. And just to elaborate a little bit on that last one, sometimes a company will realize that they might need new technical leadership whether that's a vp engineering or a cto or a cio role but they're not exactly sure what's needed they're still kind of new to the uh to the newly acquired company so sometimes i'll play that role on a transitional basis which really can help the new the new ceo the new owners figure out what's really needed in the job so that we can hire the best person best possible person uh the first time around
0: sure well i i can tell you from uh First-hand experience in working with you as a as a as a friend, a, a colleague, uh, an investor, and and now uh, a shared um, uh, directorship opportunity that we have together. Uh, you know your insight uh, into the, the the technology and specifically the software elements of uh, the business that we have the opportunity to work on together um, will really help shape the technology vision and path for this company, and will I I believe unlock um, new and interesting uh avenues for scalability and growth in this company so i I can see uh this value first firsthand oh well,
1: thank you and i'm i'm grateful for that opportunity
0: so you've undoubtedly seen a a broad range of companies in the in the entrepreneurship through acquisition realm by now all sorts of different uh, industries and Mm -hmm. niches that maybe you didn't even uh know existed (laughs) prior to (laughs) getting involved in this community yep maybe uh, comment on some of the the common factors though or or trends that you see in technology and those teams around technology maybe start with like the 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 strengths of uh, that you see as common themes in in these technology organizations within small businesses
1: yeah absolutely um first i just want to touch on something you you mentioned there which is just the the exposure to the different businesses and um I'm I'm just blown away by the 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 breadth of the uh the engagements and opportunities. I mean, you and I are working on one together, uh, but I've been involved in everything from fresh food management, freight logistics and audit, physical therapy services, gift card processing, software distribution for universities, distributed antenna systems, and services for beverage alcohol industry. I mean, when I said I might want to do something a little different from trading. I couldn't have couldn't have landed in a in a group of people with more interesting opportunities with, without question. So that that part is just so much fun. Um, no, no stone left unturned. No kidding. Yeah. Um, so, but as far as some of the common factors, so starting with strengths and positives, there's three things that really jump out at me when I uh, when I look at the IT teams in the lower middle market companies. The first is loyalty. I'm I'm really amazed at how many i t staff have been at a company for ten years, twenty years. Turnover rates tend to be quite low that is that is not the norm um, in in much bigger companies and it's uh it's certainly not the norm in the the industry I came from. Um, second, most of the developers have a really deep understanding of the business and the customers. I mean they can tell you which feature was driven by which customer, probably even the name of the person at that customer. They know which customers are going to be most impacted by changes to which parts of the system and that that deep business knowledge and customer knowledge is just, it's such an important part of, uh, of the business. And the third thing that really jumps out at me is, uh, to a T, I'm impressed with uh, the humility of the teams. Every situation I've encountered a due diligence can be a tough process Um, it can be grueling and it's easy to feel like you're being judged and to feel defensive but most of the teams i've encountered are really open to making improvements to the software Um, improving the process sometimes even improving the team itself especially when they start to think about what growing the business could mean Um, and that's actually one of my favorite questions to ask is to just ask people on the it teams what scares you the most about possibly growing to be ten times the number of customers you have right now or ten times the volume you have right now and in many cases they just haven't really thought about it so they're very open to ideas for improvement as opposed to we've thought about it this is exactly the way to do it we know we know what we're doing we don't need your input and we got it covered it's really that I think in a lot of these situations the IT teams haven't been presented with exponential growth opportunities and when you really think about that it it opens you up very quickly to thinking about doing things in, uh you know maybe a slightly different way
0: sure well well that that's great i mean i think that you know for people that are uh pursuing the eta path looking out for uh some of those uh three things that you just mentioned will be um it it sounds like the the good news is that those are recurrent themes Mm -hmm. uh, that you that you see in uh, both your uh, diligence uh, and evaluation efforts as well as the companies that you're involved in uh, post-acquisition. That's right. How about, how about some of the problems or challenges that might exist in these technology organizations?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so most most companies feel like their software supports a good product offering. I mean, they wouldn't be where they were if they hadn't. They wouldn't have been able to grow the business to the point they were if they didn't have a good product offering. But most companies feel like they don't get enough new features fast enough and on a related note every it team feels overworked and they wish they could spend more time on new features too um and it's interesting because i don't just mean developers i mean i even had one help desk tell me they wish they could spend more of their time on calls answering questions about how to use new features and far fewer time on phone calls dealing with problems with upgrades or recurring bugs. So everybody at every level of a business wants to spend more time adding value to the core products for the customers. So to be fair though, those symptoms are not uncommon in companies of all sizes and scopes. Um, But they're especially pronounced in the lower middle market companies for what I think are two reasons. Um, The accumulation of technical debt and the lack of attention to software process. Um, And I'll touch on both of those, but let me take take technical debt first. So when you do something that's quick, but it's not the best way to really solve the problem, that's sometimes also known as a hack, you're accumulating technical debt. Like financial debt, some amount, some leverage is appropriate um, when it's carefully managed and paid down at the right time but if accumulating technical debt and never paying it off, meaning never going back and doing something the right way becomes the norm, the systems become much more complicated to support, which directly impacts how quickly and reliably a business can get new features. So a quick hack to fix a production problem or to demo a feature for a prospective customer is perfectly fine, but there has to be a commitment to circle back and make it more supportable long-term but more often than not, those hacks stay in longer than anyone ever thought they would, um, and that can be a killer. Now, to put it in perspective, though, it's really easy to fall into this trap, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try an analogy, I'm gonna try a story on you here that actually happened to me recently that has nothing to do with software. Um, so my family of four produces dirty dishes like we're running a 100-table restaurant. I really don't know, I don't know where it comes from, I don't know how we do it. But I'm running a dishwasher load of everyday stuff, every single day. Um, But my daughters like to bake sometimes, so that dirties up some of the really big stuff. So that's not your everyday stuff, that's your mixing bowls and your baking pans and all sorts of measuring stuff, big utensils, stuff that doesn't fit in easily with other dishes. So one day, a couple of months ago, I'm loading loading, uh, dishes into a half-filled dishwasher, Um, And I think, all right, I'm going to load in baking stuff. And I go, oh, no, but there's more usual stuff from the day that needs to go in there. So I take out all the big stuff, and I decide I'm going to do that later. So you you might see where I'm going with this. So (laughs) the next day, I decide I'm going to include all the baking stuff in the load. But again, what do you know? You know, there's the daily load of dishes. So I take them out and load the everyday stuff instead. So lather, rinse, and repeat, right? Or in this case, don't lather, don't rinse, (laughs) and, and repeat. So you know it's not a software story there but it's 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 a story about how you it's easy to fall into the trap of short-term thinking so yeah. if you ask yourself if you only ask yourself is now the best time to tackle this thing with everything else going on you're too often going to answer no but then when's the time ever right i mean when have you ever not needed to run the business respond to customer issues and deliver the new feature that you already promised there's there's never a good time if you always look at it that way, so it's really easy to accumulate technical debt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then just to touch on the second common challenge I mentioned, it's related to software process. Um, so just briefly, software process is all the steps from the time there's an idea in somebody's head to the time it's running in production, adding value for your customers. So ideas have to be defined, prioritized, designed, developed, tested, deployed, and supported for customers in order to start making money off those. So there's hundreds of books and studies and white papers about software process and best practices. I won't go into them in much more detail. I will say they're not about producing huge stacks of documents and introducing long, drawn-out bureaucratic processes. I would encourage uh, listeners to read an overview, at least, of Agile which is a way of developing software with frequent uh high quality deliveries and another one called another uh, term called devops which is a way of thinking about development and operations together to really kind of streamline your that pipeline from the time you have an idea in someone's head to the time it's in production and there's one last thought on that cuz i've actually heard it stated this way so agile is highly disciplined i've heard a couple of uh Business owners say, "Oh, we're very agile because we kind of do whatever anyone wants, whenever they want it." Um, that's not agile. That's just reacting. Um, so, and uh, that's that's not a scalable process. So, uh, so David,
0: um, I I really like your uh, analogy, the the dishwashing analogy. That's a, that's, a, that's a good one. I might have to repurpose that at some point. It's all yours. Uh, I so the. Um, Let's maybe take a little, let's shift gears a little bit and and talk about, we mentioned SaaS earlier, software software as a service. Um, You know, more and more, I think, Searchers and and entrepreneurs that are pursuing this path are seeing opportunities uh, in 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 the universe of SaaS. I think that you know valuation on occasion can become a, a challenge for these types of businesses, frankly for for obvious reasons. I think there are some uh, some real uh, attributes in recurrence of revenue and scalability that that an investor and an operator might be drawn to. Um, why is this becoming such a hot topic? And what are some of the challenges that you see in uh, maybe a, a SaaS model or the movement from mm-hmm. a business that is is not SaaS to sort of a quote-unquote you know SaaS business? Right,
1: so great question. Um, so first, it's a hot topic uh, simply because the benefits are real. And I mean, you already touched on one of the big ones. So from a business standpoint, recurring revenue, it's a big factor in, uh, uh, searcher criteria. I mean, it's a big factor in finding and closing a deal. Um, recurring revenue models are technically a lot easier to support when there's no software deployed to a customer site, where customers also have to pay for their own infrastructure to run it. Um, plus, it's pretty hard to support a pay per usage model when you can't really view or control the usage at the customer's own sites. So, you know, the shift to recurring revenue uh, for software as a service and the architecture behind software as a service i mean they're not it's not a coincidence they they go hand in hand very well um, I mean some of the other benefits are it makes onboarding new customers a lot easier when they don't need the hardware and software at their site in some cases they may just need an internet connection and a web browser um, there's also just a huge benefit to having complete visibility into how your customers are using your systems um, when everyone's running off of a single version of the software hosted in the cloud there's no question what features they're using which ones they're not how the systems are performing you can even start to look at usage patterns and trends and aggregate across all of your customers I mean these things just aren't possible when you've got the systems running at uh, at customer sites and there's another kinda of less tangible benefit to SaaS that I, I find particularly compelling is it really helps a business focus on what the business does best and only what the do- business does best. And, and here's what I mean by that. Unless your business model is actually about managing data centers, servers, databases, networking, security, availability, SaaS providers with Amazon AWS and Microsoft Azure being the two biggest, they're doing it better than your business ever could. So leverage them when you can. I mean, your, your goal should be to build what only you can build, and only build what gives you a competitive advantage and offload as much of the rest as you can. And I mean, of course, the devil's in the details, and it's rarely that simple, but I think that should be the goal, and I think the, the technology and the product offerings from the SaaS providers have uh, matured to the point where that's, uh, that's no longer bleeding edge or even leading edge technology. Sure, sure. Um, As far as some of the challenges for migration that you asked about I think um, there's two the the first is design and I don't in that case I don't really mean the design of the the web pages it's not how they look or how they feel I mean when a software has been deployed to customer sites they're all running their own copies Um, they don't have any relationship to what's running at other customer sites So developers may have coded something deliberately or accidentally that assumes the software would only ever run for one customer. Well, that's not going to work when you deploy it in a situation where it's the same software that every customer is hitting. So software that wasn't designed to be multi-customer from the beginning has to be pretty thoroughly vetted for those kind of constraints. And look, if there's a handful of those little things you find around the edges, that's one thing. But if you find that some of those are deeply modeled into the you know the fundamental core parts of your system that's another um the second challenge actually relates to something i touched on briefly earlier it's just good software practices if uh if a business has a good track record of delivering high quality software using a prioritized list of features and a roadmap they've probably got a pretty good shot at successfully migrating to saas even if they encounter a couple of those design hiccups i mentioned a second ago but on the other hand, if a business has a track record of delivering buggy software or features that are consistently behind plan or they have a hard time upgrading customers, I mean, it's going to be a struggle getting to a single version of the software that gives all your customers what they need. I mean, the bar the bar is a lot higher for SaaS. You don't. You don't have the luxury of just upgrading one customer and then rolling that customer back if something else goes wrong. Sure. So it's 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 a higher bar for sure.
0: Can, can we drill into one uh, thing that you touched on there a little bit further, David? Which is um, this this notion of migration to a SaaS model, mm-hmm. right? I, I think. It's something that um, I've seen a bunch of in uh, searcher uh, uh, sort of thesis whereby you find a legacy software business and you, you know, um, over time, uh, maybe I've, seen, I've seen some uh, people sort of assume that it, it can happen in a relatively short period of time and, and maybe some that are more realistic and it happens mm-hmm. over a longer period of time. But this this notion of migrating to a SaaS model and, and sort of all the benefits that come along with that um, are, are obviously very appealing when you sort of jot that down in your investment mm-hmm. memo, right? right? Is it naive to think that that type of migration is something that uh you know someone could pull off with a um you know w- without too much brain damage or orga- organizational change or cost or time maybe some comments on sure. on that because i do, i do see these opportunities uh where a, par- a core part of the thesis is this migration and i often right. scratch my head and say you know is it is it naive to think that that is uh something that would be uh very easy to pull off
1: so a couple of questions embedded in there so i'll 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 take one of them first which is, uh, should a company migrate to SaaS? Um, and not every company should. I mean, there's there's one that you and I are engaged in that is strictly internal software and it's really not customer facing. So, you know, don't, don't migrate to SaaS because the buzzword is SaaS. I mean, migrate to SaaS because your customers are gonna benefit from it and you're gonna benefit from it. So the kind of benefits you're gonna get relate to and the kind of things that customers are demanding relate to um, running less at their own sites having customers have less responsibility for running things day to day um, and have you as a business have more visibility into what's going on across all of your customers so the kinds of teams that are going to successfully be able to make those transitions without to your point um, you know brain surgery or just huge heavy lifting or two to three year projects where you have to add five or six more people to your staff. I mean, it's going to be the architectures that uh, don't bump into a lot of the constraints that I mentioned where things weren't built long ago with one particular customer in mind. They had some foresight um, as to where they wanted to see things go and the teams that are going to have the higher chance of succeeding without needing lots more people, um, upgrades to the team, additions to the team are those with a fairly mature software process? Um, I really think it takes. I think it takes both, and that's that's part of what you do want to do your best to assess in the pre-deal diligence phase because it may it may not lead you to the decision to bail on the deal, but it may lead you to recognize. Hey, this team needs a little bit of help. We should plan a little more working capital as we're going through and uh, and pulling the final terms together.
0: No, I I I think that's really insightful. And and you know one of the things that I've <clears throat> observed is that it it often is easy for us to sort of convince ourselves that this migration can result in you know sort of a a, a, a shifting in in the growth profile of the company or a a a a. Uh, an improvement to the cost infrastructure, right? But I I think that... Uh, it would be naive to think, depending on what's incumbent in that organization as it relates to their current software processes, the in, the incumbent team and their capabilities, um, you know, the the the, the uh, inertia among the customer base to change the way that they pay you or they interact with you uh, as a paying customer. Uh, I think you really need to have a deep understanding of how all of that works before you make. The assumption that that can be uh, a, a sort of a, a seamless transition over a short period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, maybe the last last question I'd like to ask, and 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 a good place to sort of wrap up is maybe put on your investor hat for a minute, David. And you know, there there might be a perception uh, that that software deals are kind of riskier, right? And so let's think about you know kind of risk and return opportunity and you know in your in your opinion is that increased level of risk a reality? Is it perception? Is it maybe driven by, um, you know, maybe lack of experience or deep understanding in something as technical as software-based businesses or SaaS or technology broadly? Maybe some commentary on on this notion of risk associated with sure. uh, software sort of driven companies.
1: And, and from a completely unbiased person like myself, who, <laughs> uh, who hasn't spent uh, decades doing this. Um, So seriously, though, I mean, I think the perception is justified to some degree. A a software business has a product, but it's intangible. Uh, You can't use all the same widget metaphors we used in business school um, when compared to physical products. So think widgets again, or even services provided, be it legal accounting or, you know, IT consulting. Um, The key metrics are different, and the dials that you can turn to change your results are different. But that said... I think it's often made a lot harder than it needs to be Um, you know I'll hear sellers say oh we can't possibly do a product roadmap our customers are just too demanding and their needs are always changing well no that's really not unique to your business um, by any stretch of the imagination so (laughs) uh, I'll hear development leadership say we just don't have time to go back and fix that we've got too much other work to do well no Leaving some of those hacks in place is actually costing you a lot more time than you realize when you're trying to do all that other work on your plate that you just mentioned. And then I'll hear the developers say, we can't possibly build code to test that in an automated way, it's too complicated and it changes all the time. Well, no, you can and you should and it's gonna save you a lot of time and money in the, in the long run. So, so no, when this is all done well, there's no reason in my mind that running a software driven business has to be harder or riskier than any other product service product or service business different. Yes, but I don't think it's necessarily harder or riskier.
0: How, how important, uh, would you say it is for a searcher to, uh, you know have someone with your experience or uh your technological capabilities whether it's a a board member or you know uh augmenting the team um when maybe they don't come from a, a technical background maybe some words of advice on that for folks that might be pursuing uh some of these more uh, software intensive opportunities
1: so i i think it's very important i think having uh having people who with experience doing complicated software projects um, as part of your network, be it somebody that you interact with on the diligence level, somebody that, that helps you uh, do a more detailed assessment of the team, someone on your board of advisors, board of directors, uh, or even just a network of friends, uh, it's important. Um, you know, software, as I said before, I don't think it has to be harder or riskier, but there's no question that it is different and uh, uh, and someone who can kind of help you navigate that and um, kind of help you figure out, especially in the the pre-deal diligence phase and the deal closing phase. People often talk a good talk. Um, sometimes a, a a searcher without a technical background can't really tell if they're really walking that walk, and that's something that uh, that I really enjoy doing.
0: Well, David, uh, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights and demystifying. I think you know some of the things around technology-driven organizations and, and software-driven organizations that uh, are becoming more and more uh, prevalent in opportunities that we see in the universe of ETA. So uh, your, your, your time and your insights are invaluable. Uh, we thank you so much. So on behalf of uh, the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, uh, we very much appreciate your time.
1: Thanks again for having me, Brian.